Today, we are in the middle of a series that I'm calling Homesick. The idea is this. Even when life is really good, we still have this desire or this need or this feeling that it should be even better. Like you can have just whatever your list is, you can check off all the lists. And then at night or in the morning or when you're driving your car or when you're thinking, there can still be this kind of restless angst about, huh, is this it? And I think the reason why, we don't want life to be good. We want it to be great. We want life to be like paradise because there's in all of us an echo back to Eden. We know we are designed for paradise in God's presence where things were great. But because of sin, we lost that and we were exiled out of Eden and we all live east of Eden since then. And so every person I think that is really honest will feel that, that we're homesick. We wanna go back there, but we can't. It's been blocked. The good news is, if you read the last two chapters of the Bible, guess where we go? Yeah, it's the Garden of Eden, but better. It's called the New Jerusalem. And the tree of life has been transplanted from Eden and it's there. And the, the rivers are there. It's like all these images from Eden are now in the New Jerusalem. But the difference between the Garden of Eden and New Jerusalem is there's a bunch of people there. We're gonna have a ton of fun with a bunch of people. It's gonna be awesome. So that's our destiny. But then the big question is, okay, what do we do now? We all feel this. We all can sense it. So how do we live now? So what we've been doing is looking at people because a massive part of scripture is actually about people living in exile. So we've been looking at these individuals, what they did while they lived in exile, and we're trying to learn from them. So we saw Moses. Moses gave us the lesson that we're to fight. He fought Pharaoh, this oppressive dude that was enslaving God's people and killing God's babies. He said, no, God called him up and he wouldn't fought that. And I think Christians are supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to fight oppressive systems, push back against evil and darkness, that we're called to do those things. All right, then we looked at Esther last week and her lesson was simple, risk. She risks her position as queen and her identity as a Jew to save her people. And she has that line, if I perish, I perish. But for such a time as this, she's brilliant. Today, we're gonna look at a third person. His name is Ezra. You can turn there if you want. I'd recommend looking at the table of contents if you don't know where it's at in your Bible because it's a slim one. Ezra, here's his thing. He is being told, go home. You've been in exile for a long time. Now you can go home. So if you know your Bible history, here's what happens. The children of Israel begin to do something that Jeremiah says God didn't even imagine that they would do. They begin to sacrifice their children to a God called Moloch. So God says, that's it, I'm done. You guys, uh-uh. So King Nebuchadnezzar comes in in three waves, wipes out Jerusalem, wipes out Israel, transplants all the people from there over to Babylon. So they live in exile in Babylon. Well, after 70 years, a new king comes up. His name is Cyrus. Cyrus says, 
hey, Jews, you can all go home. Go home, go to your city, go to the place that God said, this is your promised land, go where the temple is, go home. Guess how many people went home? 2% of the population. 98% said, ah, Babylon's not that bad. Got a job here, doing pretty good. Kids are in soccer. Don't want to pull them out. I'm good, right? And so they don't go home. So that's, that's what Ezra's faced with. He's faced with this group of people that at one time, maybe their fathers or somebody, they were on fire for Jesus and they loved God and, and they worship Yahweh, but now it's gone. Nah, I'm good. You ever felt that way? Like, man, seven years ago or seven months ago, I was on fire for Jesus and I was into it, but now it's like, <sighs> you ever felt that way? Then Ezra's for you. Because he says this, revive. His thing is revive. How do you revive a people that have gone stagnant and just kind of, uh, uh, how do you, what do you do with them? Well, that's Ezra, revive, brilliant book, okay? So Ezra chapter eight is where we will begin. So Jesus, as we study this man, I pray for any heart in here, we all go through seasons of distance, seasons where our passions are lessened, seasons where we have left our first love. So we pray that as we study this man, that we would learn from his way how to see our souls and our spirits set on fire again for you. So speak, may we listen. We ask this in your name, amen. Ezra 8 verse one. These are the heads of their father's houses and this is the genealogy of those who went up with me from Babylonia in the reign of Artaxerxes, the king. And from verse two, all the way down to verse 14, is a list of these very hard to pronounce names that tell us the families that said, okay, we'll go. I'm not going to read it. You can if you want to. What you see is this tiny minority they're probably the people that have no jobs, the people that have no opportunities in Babylon, the people that are like, yeah, fine, I'll go across 500 miles of desert and go to a burned out city without a temple, without walls. Sure, couldn't be any worse than this is. And it's this group of people that through a process, Ezra and Nehemiah, that God uses to both rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. I love that. Who does God use over and over and over again? The last person you expect. The last person you expect over and over again. It's like the Statue of Liberty has that saying, give me your tired, give me your poor, give me your huddled masses that yearn to breathe the free air, right? Jesus, Yahweh, had been saying that for a long time. I did not come for the well, I came for the sick. Give me the sick, broken down people that no one else wants that are discarded and I will use them to build my kingdom and nothing will be able to ever tear down what I built. Love that. 
when a church loses that, that that's the kind of person that God uses. When a church loses that, then what we start being concerned about is how people look. That's like, to me, the first diagnostic of a church that's lost its mission. Let us never lose our mission. God loves the tired, the broken, the poor. He goes, watch me use them. Read 1 Corinthians chapter one, okay? So that's this crew. And Ezra's job is to try to get this crew of people into shape, if you would, to rebuild and revive a broken city. So there's tons and tons and tons of stuff in here. I'm gonna give you three. Three that I think stand out as no matter where you're at, maybe you feel this way. If you don't, at some point you will go through this. I have seasons of it. Here are some things, just good practical advice how to get revived. Number one, look at verse 15. I gathered them to the river that runs to Ahava, and there we camped three days. As I reviewed the people and the priests, I found there none of the sons of Levi. Then I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, leading men, and for Joy Arab and El Nathan, who are men of insight, and sent them to Edu, the leading man at the place Casaphia, telling them what to say to Edu and his brothers and the temple servants at the place Casaphia, namely to send us ministers for the house of our God. He could have just said that. I mean, just made this a simple sentence. I need some people. <laughs> no, nope, all these names, and we'll see why. And by the good hand of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the son of Levi, son of Israel, namely Sherebiah with his sons and kinsmen, 18. Also Hashabiah and with him Jeshiah and the sons of Merari and his kinsmen and their sons, 20 besides 220 of the temple servants, whom David and his officials had set apart to attend the Levites. They were all mentioned by name. Obviously, I just read them. <laughs> I love Ezra. Okay, number one, want to be revived? Get a tribe. Ezra is a Levite. These people that say, yeah, we'll go. He counts them. He looks around. Guess what he finds? My tribe's not here. I'm a Levite. There are no Levites here. So guess what he does? He gets together this crew, has very specific instructions for them and says, we need to get a tribe together. I need my tribe. There's an arrogance right now that's crept into the church. And the arrogance is this. I don't need a tribe, I just need Jesus. Just me and Jesus, I just do my Jesus thing. I don't need anyone else. That's ridiculous. The Bible begins with Adam in a garden in perfection. And what does God say to Adam? Bro, it's not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to be alone. Who will you blame when you can't find your tools? Get him a wife and some kids. <laughs> right? Just follow that through. Deuteronomy 25. 
Moses talking to the people. Remember when we wandered in the wilderness, we'd pack up and we'd leave. And sometimes a family would get separated from the congregation. And what happened to that family? The Amalekites came and wiped them out. They got separated. They got wiped out. Look at King David versus King Solomon. King David had these prophets, Nathan and Gad, who would come to him and exhort him and talk to him and actually really put it to him if he was off. And he kept him and he finished strong. Solomon never had those kind of people. Solomon was a guy that, I just need Jesus, man. I don't need anyone else. I don't need you guys to tell me I'm good. And the end of his life is miserable. Read Ecclesiastes chapter two. I hate life. We are designed to be in a tribe, to be with people that help us and exhort us and talk to us and say, hey man, I've been seeing something in you. We're designed for that. Ezra knows that. I gotta have this crew. I gotta have these people with me. Even Jesus in Matthew 26, when it says he would despaired of life itself, he grabbed three of his disciples and said to them, come with me and pray for me. Jesus even said, I got to have a crew. So if I was to ask you right now to take out a piece of paper and write out your tribe, could you write out some people? What kind of people would they be? Because the Bible says this, bad company corrupts good morals. Is the crew that you keep, are they people that you're like, yes, front page of the Daily Courier? Or would you say, nah, they're police report of the Daily Courier? Because I say this all the time to young people. I do not have to be a prophet to tell you what you will be in one year. I just look at your friend's Instagram account and whatever I see them doing, in one year, you'll be doing the same thing. That's what happens. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. It just starts to sim simply just get into us and we start to do that. How's your tribe? We all have got to have one. How is it? Ezra was very specific, was he not? Let me look at the names. I read that painfully to show you like, look how specific he is. I sent to this person, to that person. I want these kind of people with me. I want these kind of people with me. Because Ezra knew this by myself, I will never build the kingdom. I have not met a person yet that said, I just need Jesus. I have not met a person like that that was actually a kingdom changer. Maybe they exist somewhere. I haven't met them yet because it takes a tribe. And Ezra knew it. I gotta get people around me. They're gonna say, we'll go across the desert with you to go rebuild a city. We'll do that. And that's awesome. Very specific. I think sometimes young people are specific about friendships in the wrong way. Like I talk to my kids about this all the time because they're like, you know, I'll be like, hey, what about this? They're not cool. I'm like, oh no, the horror of it all. A friend who is not cruel. <laughs> A friend who is not cool. The struggle is real for you. And it's this desire, like I gotta have these hipper, cooler, whatever friends because your identity is from them. I keep telling my kids, get people that will be kingdom builders. Get people that have a love for Jesus Christ. Get people like that because they will stay with your tribe forever. Do that, okay? Do you have that kind of tribe? Do you have that kind of tribe? Step one, Ezra says, I gotta get people that are in my tribe. I want you to notice one other thing on this that I really was spending some time yesterday on. And it's this. Who are the Levites? 
Did anybody know? The priests, right? The Levites, it's Exodus 32, 34. The Levites, God said, they're my tribe. They're gonna be the priests. They're gonna represent me to the people. They'll represent the people to me. They'll do sacrifices. They're the clergy, if you would, the Levites. So when God says, hey, you guys can go home, what tribe says, no thanks? The Levites, the guys that are supposed to serve in the temple, Ezra's like, there's none. And of all these people, there's not a single other Levite. They're the lost Levites. The people that should be the first up, should be leading the charge, should be out there demonstrating. They're the ones that are like, nah, no thanks. You know, that's still the way things are today. I'll give you a story about it. So I went to school up in Portland and I would stay at this place called the Worldview Center. It was a Christian youth hostel. So for $25 a day and night, you could stay there and eat breakfast, uh, but you're in a room with like eight bunk beds. Sometimes I'd have the room to myself. Sometimes there'd be seven other people in there. Snorers, it was awesome. That's when $25 seemed like, yeah, that's not a bargain. But this one year I went up, I had two weeks in a row. So I'm up there for two weeks. First week I'm there with these two guys and they're both in their 20s. Chris Joy, he lives in Eugene. And this guy named Alex, I can't pronounce his last name. He's from the Ukraine and was studying to be a chaplain in the US Army. Some of the best stories I've ever heard from Alex. He was so awesome. And so we have a week together and we're like eating dinner together and we would talk about the kingdom and talk about Jesus and talk about ideas till late in the night. Like on Thursday night, the last night we were together, we were up till 1.30 in the morning, just talking and praying, excited about Jesus. And so then they left and I had the weekend. And Sunday, the person that runs the Worldview Center is like, hey, um, we got three more people coming in. They're pastors from Sacramento. I'm like, right on, man, cool. Be able to hang out with some people like me that, you know, we'll talk shop. Okay, so Monday morning I meet them and then I went to my classes and they did their thing. And then I came home, I actually had dinner that night. So I didn't get home till late till like 8.30 and they were gone. And then that Monday night, late in the night, I started having this dream. You know, dreams are so weird. So I'm having this dream and the dream was this. I started smoking cigarettes. Like it's so random, right? What in the world? And then the, the crisis of the dream was this. How am I gonna tell my wife? Right? How am I gonna go home? And she's gonna be like, how was seminary? It was awesome. I learned about Jesus and started smoking cigarettes. I mean, how awkward is that? So I'm like, oh, how am I gonna do that? Weird. And then I woke up. And the reason why I was so dreaming about cigarettes is the room smelled like cigarettes and stale beer that they just got in there and they'd been out partying. I was like, hmm, that's interesting. And that pattern was repeated for the next four nights. I didn't even see them. It broke my heart. I thought, these are lost Levites. They know, and they've been passionate about Jesus, but something's happened, you know? Something's, something's drifted in them now. Something's wrong, and it broke my heart. So let me ask you this question. How many of you know a lost Levite? Raise your hand if you know someone that knows the truth and should be in it, and they're not anymore. Raise your hand if you know someone like that. Imagine right now, if each of us this week, like Ezra, he specifically says, go here, talk to them, tell them what to do. What if each of us did that? Because the Bible is full of these verses that say, remember. Revelation 2, 
You've left your first love. Remember from where you've fallen. Repent and redo your first things again. Hosea 11 too. Remember how you sung to me in the desert. Remember that. Remember how good it was. Come back to it. What if each of us did that? I have a name at home. I wrote it down yesterday. I'm contacting him this week. Hey, bro, what happened? He's a lost Levite. Where are you at? Imagine the change in grants pass if every person that we just, and, and I, this has happened to every service. If every person that we just raised our hand for got on fire for Jesus again. How's grants pass change? Oh man, we're revived as a city. We're revived. So number one, you gotta get a tribe. And there's all kinds of ways to do that. Community groups, men's groups, you can call us. Get a tribe, number one. Number two, look what this tribe does. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Verse 23. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. You wanna be revived? Get a tribe. Number two, what do they do? They fast and pray. It's like a broken record, right? If you read the Bible, what you see is fasting and praying seems to come up an awful lot. So let me ask you as this, as a follower of Jesus, have you ever taken a period of time and fasted and prayed? They're like, we want a safe journey for ourselves and our children. Have you ever been like, man, my kids, they don't seem like they're quite right right now. It seems like the journey is doing something to them. I'm gonna fast and pray for them. Intercede for them. Help them by fasting and praying. Right? Ever done that? A couple years ago, actually more than that, a number of years ago, I started this kind of practice. And it's this, I started it by doing this five years ago. I left my house because I was trying to be like Jesus, Mark 135, it says, he went away all night and prayed. So I thought, I'm gonna do that. So I decided to go up on a mountain and pray all night. And when I was getting ready, my daughter, Bella, who's, who was 11 at that time, was like, daddy, don't go. And daddy, don't die. And daddy, if you do die, can I have your iPad? <laughs> like, sure, I won't need it. And what I did is I just went up there for a whole night and I had these questions that I would ask myself and then I would just walk and pray over them and then worry about a cougar. I did worry about a cougar. Once Bella said that, I'm like, man. And these are the kind of questions I was asking myself. It was, is there something in this last year that's like plaguing me with regret? And then I would listen and I would just write them down. I got some regrets. Hmm. What do I do about those, Jesus? And then, if I died right now up here, mountain lion attacked me, broke my neck, ate me. Is there stuff that I have left undone in my life that's gonna be like, a bummer for other people, especially my wife and my kids. Have I just left a trail of like undone stuff? Have I done that? And I wrote down the things that came to mind and I prayed over them. Lord, how do I solve these things? 
And then I ask myself, is there something God has asked me to do that I have not obeyed him? Like I know God has said, do this. And I'm like, nah, I'm not doing it. And I wrote him down and I prayed over him. And then I asked, how's my relationship with Jesus? How's my relationship with my wife? How's my relationship with each of my children? How's my relationship with the pastors, with staff, with neighbors? And I wrote down, I prayed about it. Then I asked myself, what brings me real joy in life? What do I say? Man, if I could do this more, that would be awesome. And what do I do that I say, if I could do this less, that'd be really awesome. And I wrote those things out. And I just spent all night just doing that. I cannot explain to you how revived I was over the next couple of months. It just, it was like recentered me. It revived me. Have you ever done something like that? Or maybe it's, maybe it's like Ezra does. Maybe it's you get your tribe of people and maybe in your tribe, you know, there's this perplexing problem. Maybe it's a kid that's gone south or drugs or a marriage or pornography or whatever. There's just a perplexing problem. You're like, we can't seem to break this. Hey, tribe, would you join with me on Sunday? And we're gonna pray all day long and we're gonna fast and we're gonna come together in our community group and we're gonna pray and talk about it and then we'll break the fast together by just having a big giant feast. And we're gonna trust God hears us. What if we started doing stuff like that? If you read about the revivals in history, I don't know of one yet that did not begin with, guess what? A group, a tribe, whatever that tribe was, whatever size the tribe that was, doing two things, praying and fasting. And those two things, somehow it's like God says, I love that. Let's go. Let's go. I say, if you want to be revived, get a tribe. Number two, fast and pray. It's that Isaiah 58 thing happens. It's the fast that God calls. And we become, oh, I love the term there, the repairer of the breach. That, that the enemy makes breaches into our life or into our family or into our kids or into our community. And we say, not here anymore. We're repairing that breach now by prayer and fasting. Revive. Thirdly and lastly, and I'm gonna have to unpack this because this sounds super weird and I get it. Chapter nine, verse one. After these things had been done, they're now in the land, in Israel, at Jerusalem. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land. And here's the key, with their abominations. This has nothing to do with their ethnicities and this has everything to do with their ethics. And I'll explain that in a second. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. They were marrying daughters from these other tribes. The problem with that is their abominations. And their abominations is this. They would practice child 
sacrifice. And it was that practice that had actually gotten them kicked out of the land and put into exile. So they're in exile for years. They come back and what do they start doing again? Same thing. Same thing. So here's what happened to Ezra. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard. Have you ever pulled out your hair? A few of you look like you did, but <laughs> that was so random. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. I'm going bald. It's happening to me. Praise God. Just shave it. Yeah, go, just go slick. I mean, that's got to hurt. Pulls his hair out. So here's how the people respond. Chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehil, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but now even there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Super hard. Okay, right. Remember Solomon? Smart dude, godly, loved Jesus. He went south. Why did he go south? Anyone know? He married foreign wives, it says, that turned his heart from Yahweh to their idols and he started practicing idolatry. That's actually the root of the sin that leads to the exile. They're doing it again. So what they do is this, and it's my final point. They get psycho on sin. This is the roots that will destroy us. This is something that we have seen. We don't need any more information about how this goes. This is gonna kill us again. And they absolutely go psycho on this sin. You wanna be revived? You wanna be revived? Go psycho on sin. Well, come on, Matt, that's the Old Testament. We don't live in the Old Testament anymore. We're in the New Testament, the, the, the Testament of grace. Okay, I'll give you some New Testament. Words of Jesus. Listen to what he says about sin. And it's sexual sin too. It's Matthew chapter five, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. What's that called? Psycho on sin. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What's that called? Psycho on sin. Psycho on sin. Most commentaries will say this. You know, I don't think Jesus actually meant for us to do that. Do you know why they say that? Because we'd all be blind and armless. That's why. We're uncomfortable. Like, oh, they can't actually do that. We're all gonna be blind and armless. Well, Matt, okay. But Jesus 
It's part of the old covenant as well. He's talking to Jews here. Okay, fine. If you're an ultra dispensationalist, let's go. Romans chapter eight, verse 13. Verse 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you've got a King James version, it uses mortify. You mortify the deeds of the body. Old Puritan term. It's you put that thing to death. You smash it, psycho on sin. Ephesians 2.22, 4.22, excuse me. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. I can go on and on and on. There's a theme in the Bible, and it's a super simple theme. We're supposed to go psycho on sin by his spirit. It means that when God's spirit starts to tell you something like, this is killing you, right? It's like a parasite that's sucking the life from you. When that gets exposed, you put it to death. You go psycho. You do whatever is necessary to make sure that thing doesn't keep killing you. That's what the Bible says. My favorite illustration of this was when I taught through Romans 8, 13. It's on a Sunday morning. This young man from the back came up to me right after service and he handed me his cell phone and said, that thing causes me to sin. Take it. It's how I get all my drugs. I said, awesome. And I answered that phone all day. It was one of the most fun days of my life, man. <laughs> I would answer it and I'd say, I'd say the dude's name. I knew it. I'm like, he doesn't want your drugs anymore. Okay, listen, if you keep calling this, Jesus says, it's better that a millstone be tied around your neck and you flung into the sea. And I just hear a click. <laughs> I'd half the drug dealers in Grand Spatches freaked out. They're like, oh my goodness, I think I talked to God. Bad trip, man. <laughs> One of them recognized my voice, Pastor Matt. Yeah, who are you, man? (laughs) Click. That's it. I can't have this thing anymore. I gotta get rid of it. That's what the Bible calls us to. Why? Because it's a parasite that's destroying you. Well, Matt, my thing isn't external like a cell phone or whatever. It's not external, it's in me. It's selfishness, it's, it's arrogance, it's jealousy, it's pride, it's internal. What do I do? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, the word there is homo legeo. It means to speak the same. It's simply, I agree with you, God, that's wrong. See, what happens with most of us is we don't mortify, we actually, um, we do a lot of other things. We justify our sin. Well, it's, it's so hard or I worked really hard and I deserve a break now. So I'm gonna go there. I'm gonna look at this. I'm gonna do that. It's not putting it to death. We do everything else, pacify, justify, whatever. But the Bible says you confess, which means I'm speaking the same language as God. I'm not gonna blame somebody else for my behavior. 
I'm not gonna justify it. I'm gonna agree, God, you're right, that's wrong. That's all confession is. God, you're right, that's wrong. So if we'll confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from that unrighteousness. See, when we just simply stop all the garbage and all the excuses and all the junk and just say, God, you're right, that thing is killing me. I don't want anymore. What that does is it starts you on the path to freedom. Because the verbs there are continual. Every time that thing comes up, you're saying, God, I agree with you. This thing is sin. Tear it from me. Destroy it. Smash it. Let me go psycho on this thing. And you begin to walk out of it. And I mentioned that today because there are two sacraments in the Bible for the New Testament believer. They're baptism and communion. And so in the summer season, we do baptism on Sundays. Wednesday, we do communion, but not on Sundays. Today, we're back inside, so we do communion. And I think there is a power to communion that's often untapped in the believer's mind or faith life. And if you read 1 Corinthians 11, it says this. You guys, because of the way that you're taking communion, you're sick and you're dying. They were doing it in an unworthy manner. Now, what is the unworthy manner? There's a debate. Here's what I believe. It was rich people coming into these feasts because they'd have a meal together. And, and it was rich people scarfing down because they were rich and eating all their food while the poor people watched them eat. And then they would all take communion together and be like, oh, okay, that was great. And Paul says, you're dividing the body up. Are you kidding me? Why would you do that to people? And he says, because you're doing communion that way, you're sick and you're dying. Now imagine if that's the negative repercussion of communion. What's the incredible power of communion? I love the saying that in communion, the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. That's a moment that you can, it's embodied remembrance. It's a moment where you participate. You have to take the cup. You have to take the body. You can't just passively sit there. And if you do this in faith, believing, I think great power can be unleashed for you. And these parasites that are draining you and destroying you, man, it's the elixir that kills those things if you let it. So we're gonna take communion together. And before we do, I wanna just give a little bit of space because maybe there's some sin that God's been telling you about. His spirit's been just saying, this is killing you. This is killing you. I'm gonna give you a moment to confess that. God, I agree with you. I'm gonna stop my excuses and stop all these kind of conversations because you know what? I know it's killing me. I know it's killing me and I want it killed. So just take a moment and think that through. Confess it. And then when you eat and drink, you celebrate. God's heard me. His spirit is strong. He can set me free. You eat and drink a celebratory feast of his power. So Jesus today, I pray for hearts like all of ours that can leave our first love. I pray that we would be a group of people that have a tribe around us 
that continues to get us fired up and passionate about the things of your kingdom. I pray that we be a group of people that relish the power of prayer and fasting and engage in it for the safety of our community and our children and our families. And we be a group of people that take sin seriously. That we know it's a destructive parasite that wraps its tentacles around our heart and injects a venom that destroys us. And so I ask as we eat and as we drink, as we agree with you, that you'd be the anti-venom, that you'd unwrap these things from our heart, that you set us free to breathe the free air. And we pray this in your name, amen.